0: Hello, my name is Jacqueline. The Old Testament reading is found in Genesis two fifteen to 17. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Tyler. The New Testament reading found in Revelation nineteen six through 9. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. The word of the Lord. Hello, my name is Eric. Thank you for standing for the gospel reading found in Matthew 26, 26 through 28. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread. My name is Evan Riedall, and I am one of the associate pastors here with New Life Downtown. And I get the privilege of coming and opening up the Word of God and preaching today. So, you didn't have a choice, but thank you for having me. Right. As we come to the Word today, we're going to talk about the place of the table. We're starting a three-week series today called Worship, Connect, Serve. At New Life Church, as a whole, worship, connect, serve is the way that we express and explain how we do the church community and how we how we do our faith. Really, it is a faith in which we come together and we worship together. It is a faith with which we connect together, whether that be in small groups or at church or as moms or whatever it is. But we are called to connect with one another, and it is a faith that we are called to be servants of one another, of our city. Worship, connect, serve. At New Life Downtown, uh, we we. We use that language but we make it a little bit more poetic and we actually kind of put it in a big machine and translate it according to what could be thematically known as the table and then it spews out blessed, broken, and given. And so the worship part is what we say is our blessed part, that it is not anything that we could do, but it is what Christ has done And when we come to worship, that is why we can worship. It's because we are blessed. And then broken is our community, and given is our service. And so I get to have the opportunity to dive in today to look at what is our worship, why is our worship, how is it structured here on a Sunday, And then where do we see its theme and how do we see part of the theme played out through the entire, what I'm going to call the cosmic narrative of the scriptures and kind of of creation as a whole. So buckle up. It's going to be a whole lot of fun. Let's pray to start. Lord, we come now and approach your word, your holy word, your word, which is breathed by your spirit. And we ask today that you would breathe on us, that you would breathe into us understanding, you'd breathe into us who you are, your forgiveness, your mercy, your kindness. That as we see your truth, as we come to your word to seek knowledge and wisdom and gain insight, that your truth would be power in this place today and freedom into our lives, to the glory of your name we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So as we dive in, um, some of the readings were found. I'm not going to be able to go too, too far into a lot of the scriptures because it's going to be more like a skipping stone across the top of a lake where we're going to hit on stuff so we see the entire breadth of it instead of throwing that rock in there and it sinking deep. So, have that context. Here within the service, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, because if I wasn't on the inside meeting and had it explained to me, I don't know if I would have thought about it. But we have taken on an idea that our services should be structured like a narrative. They should have story sort of parameters to them and be a story narrative sort of paradigm. And in any story, you have an introduction, you have a conflict, rising action, climax, resolution, right? I don't know if you remember that from class. As we go into this story on a Sunday every week, we have our introduction. And it is a song. It is in greeting one another. We have rising action. It's, it's the point when we come to the scriptures that we always introduce some sort of conflict with which we look to the scriptures for understanding to kind of unravel the truth and see greater how is this conflict resolved according to the scriptures, the thing that we do here that we, we came to know and understand, this service has been around for about five years now, and it was in that time of saying, when we're preaching this conflict and finding climax and resolution, Jesus is always this climax and revolution, resolution. We cannot and we do not, and we refuse to preach in such a way as to say, when we preach, it ends on me or it ends on you. That service is up to how good the teacher did or how good worship was or anything that's of us, but rather the climactic point of how we structure our Sunday mornings says, whatever we hear, whatever we do, whatever conflict we have, it leads us to the cross and it leads us to this table. Which is why every week when we come to worship, we are led to the table, that the teaching we say, we always preach towards the table. So that wherever we end, at the end of this 20 minutes, we find ourselves coming to the table and saying, Lord, this is my confession. I need you. I have sinned. And I receive your grace again. And I engage in that grace again. Someone was listening. I like that. Where's the rest of you at? <laughs> so we have structured it in such a narrative form that we get to that climactic point, And the climactic point is this table. It's coming to the bread. It's coming to the cup. And then the resolution is our response as the church with one another to be formed into the body, to meet the spirit for him to be at work and then worship in the doxology and leave. So our entire service, we say, is a narrative structure. It has narrative flow and a climactic point of the table. As we begin this series on worship, connect, and serve, and today being worship, and as we call it, our blessedness, it really is our blessedness at the table of God that our worship is centered on that and we do it as a service structure. But I wanna take us into the scriptures today and look at a narrative idea that the scriptures have given us and how the table, which I'm gonna say right now, with any narrative sort of story, there's figurative language involved in it. So when we say the table, we don't just mean that there's four legs with a nice green tablecloth on it because it's the first Sunday of Epiphany or something like that. What we mean is that which hosts the meal. And the meal is that which unites us and brings us together in worship. So looking into this story, we're going to start where it starts, in the book of Genesis. I don't know if you've read your Bibles lately, but it takes us to Genesis 2 to find the first command in scriptures. You're paying close attention during the readings. You might know that commandment. Any guesses? I haven't heard it yet, but I'm going to suppose some of you is thinking it. Eat. Eat. Yeah. It's football season. The commandment is eat. We are doing something holy right here. The first command is eat. God creates, He puts man in the garden. He said, You may eat of any tree in this garden, except for this one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat of it. He, is, he has given us the abundance of His life and the pleasures of his, of his company and His fellowship. And He says, You can have all of it. And you know what? You know what I want you to do? I want you to eat, have fun, go. It's you and me, Adam. Go. This is the first commandment. And it's interesting. If we're looking at a narrative idea, that narration, and if you, if you look at the beginning of a story, most likely something in those first pages is going to be a foreshadowing of what the, what's in the rest of the story. If you look at the, f- the foreshadowing in the beginning, maybe we'll see that same idea played out at the end through the whole thing, that there's a theme that's not minor but actually major. Could it be... A command to eat is actually a major, major point within scriptures. Okay, how many of you guys loved that high school English class? Yep, yeah, I see that hand, I see that hand, I see that hand. Some of you may have been like me and have some PTSD memories of what happened in that high school English class, and it it just wasn't as good as it could have been, mainly because of the public speaking part. But in high school English, if you paid attention, you would have known that narrative story arc was the introduction, the introduction of a conflict, the rising action that happened from that, the climactic point, the falling action, and the resolution. It takes the Genesis 2 for us to find the theme that's centered and spoken throughout the entirety of scriptures and the conflict that's introduced to that story. Because although paradise was offered and we could eat of any tree, we went ahead and ate of that one tree which we could not eat. And there was something about... A meal, and I'm going to define it that way right now, that we might not think of what Adam was doing when he was eating that piece of fruit as a meal, but in essence it was because he was the world's first vegetarian and he had nothing else to eat, right? He was there in the garden, he could eat of anything. It wasn't you can have the fattened calf and the bread and sure, go down the red lobster. It was you get fruits and veggies, Adam, have your meal. And he says, great, I will have my meal. And yet at some point in there, He took on sin, and sin entered the world through a meal. And we find a point of conflict in the story, and it starts right there in Genesis 2. The story continues, and it outplays, and we find that God, Genesis 2, Adam, Tower of Babel, Flood, takes us to Genesis 12, and we start seeing maybe a little bit of the rising action, the unraveling of some of the story that centers around the meal. And what we're given is a people of God. Through Abram, who became Abraham, and through you, I will make you a great nation, and through you, all the world will be blessed. This Abraham, and you get Isaac, and you get Jacob, and then you get Joseph, and Joseph takes them all down to Egypt, where they find themselves enslaved. You skip forward from Genesis to Exodus, and in Exodus, the story continues, and we meet a guy named Moses. You ever heard of him? He's a good guy. Does some bad stuff, hangs out in the desert for a while, comes back. He is commanded by God to lead the people of God into freedom. Out of slavery into freedom. How is that story continued? It's continued in such a way that he says, "I'm going to give you a bunch of plagues." Okay? One plague, two plague, three plagues, four plagues, and they're being cast on the people of Egypt and Pharaoh and his household. And Pharaoh continually, his heart is hardened, he hardens it, the Lord hardens it, and they get to the 10th plague, and it's this angel of death, and what does God give them in the midst of this rising action in our story? He gives them a meal. He says, take the lamb, slaughter it, put the blood over the door, and eat this meal, the bitter herbs, the unleavened bread eat this Passover meal. And as the people of God being delivered from slavery, that act, that last plague involves a meal. And the Lord is establishing that as a central point of worship for the people of God as the nation of Israel. And I want to explain it continued because we're only in the beginning of Exodus right there. The story continues that this nation, they're delivered and this Passover meal that they had once, they continue to have. And it becomes part of their tradition, part of their faith. They're, them as a people of God, when God would do something in the Old Testament, they would celebrate it and recognize it, and oftentimes, many times, it would be centered around a meal. If you think about it, we kind of do that a little bit in America, right? I want to be thankful. Let's have Thanksgiving. It's good for all of us. And let's center the entire day around a feast. Christmas Day, celebration of the birth of Christ. We have Christmas Eve services. You actually get to the day. There's presents. And then at some point, I'm going to bet that your day turns into a feast where you gather with friends and or family, and you have a meal together. It is not foreign to us to have our faith centered around the idea of joining together and eating together for a purpose. And this was the same for the nation of Israel. Throughout their history, whether it's the Feast of Booze, the, the, the Passover Feast, whatever it was, they, they start structuring their, their calendar around feasts. I don't know if you've ever been to a Jewish church or a Messianic Jewish church. It's really a lot of fun when it's feast time because they go all out and there's dancing and it's, it's a party. But their lives are centered around this and the purpose of those feasts is join us together let us remember what has been, what God has done. There's a purpose for joining together right now, right? Christmas time, the purpose is the birth of Christ. We remember it. So let us remember what has been. Let us engage continually, since this is God we're talking about. Not that he was that way and now he is different, but that he was and he is. And let us take that and from that point and say, He was and is, and we're also holding on to this hope of who he will continually be and is to come we were given a meal in the garden and it was through a disobedience that Adam ate a piece of fruit and through a meal sin entered the world. God raises up a people of God, a nation he calls his own, and they center their lives and their worship around meals. But do any of those feasts, do any of those meals in the Old Testament Accomplish the undoing of the original sin meal that Adam had in the garden. I'll say that again. Do any of the meals in the Old Testament fully accomplish the undoing of that original meal of sin in the garden? No. As we continue the story, we get to this point, and this guy named Jesus. Jesus comes on the scene. And he gets a little bit of a reputation. Why? If you look at scriptures, if you look through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you will most likely find, if you're asking this question, how often is Jesus going to a meal, being at a meal, coming from a meal, or doing something so that a meal occurs and might be a miracle? For instance, hey, it's a bunch of us and we're listening to Jesus. We're really hungry. Jesus. The disciples want us to go. Jesus does a miracle. All of a sudden, we're having a meal together. This is great news. Jesus, eating with sinners and tax collectors, he's so often found embodying the idea of the meal that in both the Gospels of Matthew as well as in Luke, the Gospel writer records saying, This is Jesus' words. John the Baptist came neither eating nor drinking, he, he, he did not partake. And you said he had a demon. The Son of Man, Jesus, came both eating and drinking, and you called him a drunk and a glutton and a friend of sinners and tax collectors. I don't know about you, but I'm pretty stoked that my Savior was so often caught eating and drinking with others that he got a reputation for it as a drunk and a glutton. Caveat, he was not a drunk and a glutton. That would be sin. But he was so often found embodying the idea... Of the meal within ministry, within worship, that he got that reputation in what he was doing. Climactic point of this whole narrative if we're saying that it started at one point, conflict, rising action, climax. How climactic is the work of Jesus on the cross? How climactic in the undoing of sin and in our redemption and our salvation? I don't, I don't think you could argue for a different climax that we find in scriptures. And even then, we find Jesus right before he goes to that cross. We find him eating and drinking with his disciples. And in such a way that he is ushering in an entire new covenant. Don't know if you guys knew this. New covenant, big deal, Okay. Entirety of the Old Testament, Old Covenant, Jesus says, you know what, I've fulfilled this and I'm establishing a new covenant. And guess what? He doesn't just establish this new covenant at a meal, though they are celebrating with his disciples the Passover meal. It is that feast, it is that time. It's not just at the meal. It's not just during the meal or over the meal. Jesus goes as far as to say, hey, guess what? This new covenant, it's me, I'm the meal. This is, this bread which we are partaking in right now, this is my body broken for you. This cup, this is my blood of the new covenant which is being shed for you. And he takes this theme, this narrative theme at this climactic point and he doesn't shirk off the idea of a meal. He says, no, I'm going to reinforce it by establishing it as the new covenant and the undoing of the original meal is you partaking in this new covenant meal which is me, myself, my body, this bread, my blood, this cup given for you. The idea of meal is there through and through. I've been reading a book lately. You should be proud of me. A guy named Richard B. Hayes. It's called Ring Backwards. He's taking a look at how do we see the Old Testament through the lens and the understanding of the New Testament and specifically the gospel writers. And he puts it this way. If we learn from the Gospels how to read the Old Testament, we will see that the whole story of Israel builds to a narrative climax in the story of Jesus. In other words, we must perceive how the whole story of God's covenant promise unfolds and leads toward the events of Jesus' death and resurrection. He's saying the same thing, and I'm saying Jesus emphasizes it in a meal, that this is a story, that, that, that the scriptures as a whole are a cosmic narrative, and that, that they will have themes, In those themes that the one that we are introduced to in Genesis is the meal given to us for our pleasure that we took on in disobedience that became a meal through which sin entered, that there's a nation of Israel which centers their worship around the meal, that none of those were unable to do the sin. We get to the point of Jesus, this climax of the story, and it is that meal. That is the climax. If you're paying attention, the next step in this narrative flow of our high school literature class is falling action, right? Falling action, I was looking it up and I loved, loved, loved this definition of it the unraveling of the conflict. The unraveling of the conflict is what we should expect to see then after we see the climactic point of Jesus' death and resurrection, the new covenant, this meal that we partake of at the table. And what do we see in Acts, in Paul's letters, In Jude, we see them referring to love feasts. Don't stop meeting together. Continue in your love feasts. Continue to eat. Paul is instructing the entirety of the church over and over. The the scriptures that we have in the New Testament so often give us instruction on how to eat together. Goodness gravy. That This is so important that Paul needs to tell us, Jew and Gentile, how you eat together. And when you come, what are you eating together? And how are you receiving that eel? And how are you responding to that meal? We see the undoing of the original conflict that Jesus took on and became the meal and that as we participate in that meal as the church and that meal is the central point of our worship. Even Acts chapter two says, they got together, love this part, too. they devoted themselves as the church in that early, early day to the teaching, to life together, to the common meal and to prayers. That meal was the devotion of the early church. It has always been central. It is a theme that God spreads from beginning to end. And now we're seeing this falling action, the undoing of the conflict, us saying, Lord, we come to this meal to recognize that the sin brought in the beginning through a meal was undone in your righteousness by becoming the meal, and we will partake in that as the people of God, and we will do it over and over, continually participating until your return. And guess what, church? If that is the falling action, we have one more step, and that step is the resolution. We saw it in Acts 19, and it's referenced all or Revelation 19, and it's referenced all through the book of Revelation. That the resolution of our faith—this is so cool—is a wedding and a meal. Again. The entire, this this eschatological climactic point of our entire faith at the very end of it, when Christ and his second coming and the full reign of his glory and his authority and his mercy and his justice comes and is established here on earth as it is in heaven, what do we do? We get to be the bride. He is the bridegroom. We celebrate a wedding and we have a meal together. Come on. He has so centered the meal through his scriptures as a theme of us, his people, that is the place in which we worship. That is the place in which we participate. So, why do we come to this table every week? Because Christ has placed his, his self, Himself, as the meal and the center of this story. And when we come to this table that hosts Christ's meal, we hold in tension what the Scriptures tell us the meal is for. If we're the nation of Israel or the church in the New Testament, the meal is to remember and look back at what God has done. It is that centering point. This is what God has done, therefore we will continually celebrate it. For us, we get to look back and say, this is what God, Christ has done on the cross for the salvation of our sins. So you know what I do? I participate in that salvation by bringing my sin again and again. Whenever it comes, I'm looking past sins and I'm saying, Lord, they're yours. The meal... is past. The meal is also participation in the Spirit's work present. Church, there is grace that he wants to impart to you today. There is an understanding of forgiveness. There is mercy. There is delight in the God who loves you. And we participate in that through coming to the table again every week. Every week. And then the last part of it, past, present, is this future that when we come to this table every week, when we center our worship and our lives around the idea of eating together in celebration of the Lord's work, what we're doing is also remembering and celebrating the Lord's work that is to come. That the God who is Faithful, has been faithful, and will continually be faithful until that day when we get to feast at his table in the fullness of glory and the fullness of pleasure and the fullness of delight, just like it was in the garden for Adam when the first command was eat, eat, and delight yourself. We get to enter into that and we look for it and say, Man, I can't wait for that wedding. I can't wait for that meal. As we come to this table today, it's about the meal but it's also about the character within this story. We've been looking at a theme, the meal through the entirety of scripture, and that it's what we center our worship around as a people of God. But no story is told without characters. And I just want to note the character of God in this way. The character in this story is God the Father who gives us this meal in the garden. It is God the Son who becomes the meal through the gospel. And it is God the Spirit who meets us at this meal every Sunday. So churches, we come to this meal and we hold the tension of past present future what Christ has done what the Spirit is on doing in us and our hope for what is to come I would love it right now if we could just maybe fill in some of those gaps and invite the Spirit to work at us today anew as we come to this table. Even as He is inviting us today again to this table. So, if you could just close your eyes, bow your heads. And if there is a point, if there is a point in the past where there has been sin that has not come to this table, to this cross, and been cast to the cross for our forgiveness, for our salvation think upon that right now and bring it to the table in this meal when we come. If there is a point present at which you are saying, Lord, I need your ongoing work in my life. I need your ongoing work. As I come to partake of the blessing of this meal, of you, would you be present in it and meet me here? And maybe it's just holding in tension this future hope that we come to this meal with, saying, Lord, I come to this meal with great joy because I have a great hope and a secure salvation and where this whole thing is headed. And this meal is representation of that meal. And I look forward to that day. You have overcome Jesus. Just invite him in now.